As we were rehearsing before worship, Matthew said to the choir, he said, I have never been a part of a Protestant church. Matthew's played in all kinds of churches for many years. He said, I've never been a part of a Protestant church that celebrated Reformation Sunday. Um, we've never given a lot of emphasis to Reformation Sunday, but, you know, I think it's maybe appropriate. We are part of the Reformed Church, if you know your church history. Baptists do not really come uh, out, out of the historical process through the Anabaptist movement, which was part of the Radical Reformation. We really get our start from John Calvin, who was the father of uh, Presbyterianism, and the Baptists split off from the Presbyterians way back there somewhere. So we really um, take our heritage from the Reformation tradition and John Calvin rather than from the Anabaptists, even though I really like those Anabaptists, the Amish and the Mennonites. Uh, that's, they got their start as Anabaptists. So we come this day as part of the Protestant tradition and this particular church as part of a protesting tradition um, over the years. And so I hope that you can hear those words and understand why today, especially given our cultural context, a church, I think, um, beginning the schism, uh, two very different ways of understanding Christianity from the left to the right and thinking about what's happening with the church today. Is there a new reformation among us? And how do we find ourselves in that reforming tradition, reformed and always reforming? So all of that is a, uh, an introduction to today's sermon, which I'm calling with a little double entendre intended there, protesting reformation. Today is Reformation Sunday on the liturgical calendar. Well, on the Protestant liturgical calendar, on our Roman Catholic friends do not celebrate Martin Luther's break with Rome, and I guess we can understand that. Luther had become disillusioned with the church, and he protested. Now, it didn't suit the Pope too well that one of his monks was causing such a fuss. Here's a quick review if you need a little reminder of church history or world history on this Reformation Sunday. At the turn of the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences to its parishioners. An indulgence was basically a ticket to heaven, a free pass for sin. Buying an indulgence could shorten your time in purgatory, Catholics said, even purchase the salvation of a deceased loved one. Indulgences were going gangbusters these days, and a priest named Johann Tetzel had become the Grand Commissioner for Indulgences in Germany, and he was a great salesman. For three marks, which was about a half a year's wages for the average laborer, you could guarantee that Mama was no longer hanging around in purgatory, but she had made it through the pearly gates. In exchange for those three marks and Mama's salvation, the Pope was building St. Peter's Basilica, that magnificent cathedral in Rome. Well, this all didn't suit Martin Luther very well, and he was already having some personal troubles, struggling with his own sin and guilt. Believing he was a wretched sinner, he could not accept God's forgiveness no matter how many times he went to confession. But one day, Luther had an epiphany. 
Reading the book of Romans, he came across the words, for the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. Faith. Just faith. Not doing good works, not buying indulgences, paying enough, praying enough, reading the Bible enough, feeding the hungry enough. You could be made right with God by faith and faith alone. Justification by faith was the watchword of the Protestant Reformation. And for Luther and all of world history, that epiphany changed everything. Now, Luther was a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg, Wittenberg, Germany. They say Wittenberg, I believe. So emboldened by his new theological confidence, a soul no longer in jeopardy, Luther sat down at his desk and he penned 95 complaints with the way the Roman church was doing business. His paper was called The Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, or 95 Theses. And after he finished pounding out the 95 grievances with his pen, he took a hammer and what I picture as a very large nail, and he walked across the street to the All Saints Church on October 31st, 1517, Luther made his complaints very public, nailing 95 complaints in black and white on the front door of the church. We'll do that. Now, Gutenberg's printing press was already in use on the European continent, and because the printed page was now easily produced, and because an increasing number of the common folk were becoming literate, Luther's 95 theses and more of his writings were reprinted and reached the masses, and it was like the world caught fire. Before long, other preachers, preachers named Melanchthon and Zwingli and Calvin, were also offering complaints and suggestions across the European, European continent. The cat was out of the bag. With the protesting underway, the Reformation had begun. Not everybody hears the word protest when they hear Protestant Reformation, but that's what it means. With the protesting underway, the Reformation had begun. In 1521, Luther denied the centrality of the papacy and the necessity of a priest to hear confession and offer absolution, he began talking about a priesthood of all believers. This is a phrase that we Baptists ought to know very well because we've been claiming it as our own for many years. We thought we invented that priesthood of the believer, but it goes back to Luther. It was more than the Pope could take, so Luther, the heretic, was hauled in front of a church tribunal oddly called the imperial diet of worms. Now, a diet was a gathering or a meeting, and as I say, the Germans probably said worms. So it was the imperial diet of worms, and he was formally excommunicated there from the Catholic Church by Pope Leo X. In 1522, the year after he was excommunicated, he published a Bible in German, one of the first Bibles to be printed in the language of the people. Four years later, William Tinsdale translated the first English New Testament. He was burned at the stake. What Luther was doing was dangerous, 
The Pope knew this. He was taking religion out of the hands of the professionals, the trained clergy, and he was empowering the people. You know, you common folk. The people didn't need a priest to forgive their sins. The church was not the final and only arbiter of God's grace. The people, the common people could read the Bible for themselves, make their own decisions about what Holy Scripture means. Empowering the people is always dangerous. And the Pope and the church fought back. They protested the protest. More on this later. The next big event of the Reformation was the annulment of King Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. You might remember this from your history. Catherine had failed to give Henry a male heir to the throne, which he thought was all her fault. Henry needed an annulment so he could marry Anne Boleyn, and being a good Catholic, he went to the Pope. But the Pope would not annul Henry's marriage. And so basically what happened, if I can just shorten the story, is that in 1534, King Henry made himself the head of the new English church and England became a Protestant country. Now that didn't settle the matter for England, not without a whole lot more bloodshed, but we don't have time for that part of the story today. And then 20 years later, In 1555, the Peace of Augsburg granted toleration to Lutherans for Lutherans to be Lutheran, that is, Protestant Christians within the Holy Roman Empire. And in 1563, the 39 articles of of the Church of England were first published summarizing Anglican doctrine and practice. All that history to tell you that what Luther started in 1517 by nailing a complaint on the church door took a half a century to become official. Protestant Christianity was here to stay. Now this protest that Luther began started as a theological matter, maybe a high-minded affair, one ivory tower professor with an intellectual axe to grind against the ecclesiastical magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, but it changed the world only because it became a cause of the people. Other priests had complained before. Others had made their complaints against the church. It was probably Gutenberg's printing press and the fact that his complaints got out there in the public and the people began to understand the people caused the movement. Luther's view of faith shifted the focus from from action of the clergy to the action of the laity, from the church to the people, from the pulpit to the pew. Justification by faith alone, not by receiving the sacraments, the priesthood of every believer, scripture that could be read by the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. As is always the case with protest, it is the power of the people, the average folks, the people in the streets that give fuel to a movement. In 1524, the German Peasants' Revolt resulted from this sense of personal empowerment of the people. Using the language and the logic of Luther's theology, peasants demanded freedom from the feudal system that kept so many oppressed. 
Ironically, it might have been Luther's own fear that led to the defeat of the peasants' revolt. It turns out that Luther himself could not stand for all the rights that his protest implied, and he ended up backing the king and the church, which called together an army to quell this revolution in which maybe 100,000 peasants were killed. But the cat was out of the bag. It still is. At its heart, faith is about freedom, personal liberation, individual empowerment, and that movement is irrepressible. The drive for self-determination will never be quelled. Now, it can be repressed personally, or it can be enforced by external oppression for a time, but that movement of freedom is intrinsic to what it means to be human. I believe the church is undergoing another reformation, another Protestant reformation, because progress will always and only be gained by protesting what is. Conversely, the powers that be, those who maintain the status quo of church and state, the powers that be will always mount a strong defense, protesting the reformation. They will call it dangerous. They will say, we need to keep things the way they are, or better yet, go back to the way things were. They will defend a reformation of changing nothing at all and call it a defense, call it a defense of conservative values. But returning to the roots of our faith will not mean reversing course, standing on tradition, the way things were, the way things ought always to stay unchanged. The roots of faith, evident throughout the witness of Scripture, are the seeds of freedom which always mean movement and growth and newness, the courage to become, the courage to see a new day and walk into it without fear. I said to our Sunday school class as we met this morning, I understand why conservatives fear what has happened to their country in the last half century. I do understand. There has been a lot of change. In my lifetime, and I'm not that old, but in my lifetime, we have seen movements of racial equality, the empowerment of women, workers' rights, gay rights, waves of immigration, a nation that is changing, as we said in our opening litany, less white, less male, less Christian, more diverse, multicultural, pluralistic. There's been a lot of change in a half century. I get that. But we are not going back. We are not going back unless you think people of color are going to quit being people of color. Unless you think women are going to go back to being barefoot and pregnant and that gay people will just quit being gay or just go back in the closet where they all were 50 years ago. Unless you think women are going to just quit having to make unbearable decisions that men never have to face. 
Unless you think people are going to quit crossing imaginary borders on the ground, seeking personal security and the welfare of their families, we are not going back. We cannot. Now, I'm not making this statement out of some angry defiance. I am just naming what is. We are not going back. We cannot go back. Human history always moves forward. Yes, the church and the king 500 years ago put down the peasants' revolt for the moment. But Germans do not live in a feudal system today. Human freedom is winning. Human creativity and human self-determination will always win. The church facing today's revolution is having to decide how to respond. We can protest the reformation that is underway, doubling down on a reading of Scripture that justifies the way things were, or we can be part of the protest, protesting the fear that will always keep us backward-looking. In that protest, we will also return to Scripture In our protest, we will also return to Scripture. But in that Scripture, we will find the story of a people always on the move, always open to the wind of God's Spirit and to the spirit of inevitable change in the culture. In that protest, Scripture will help us to see Scripture anew. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, And Scripture is always speaking to us anew, if we are willing to listen. On this Reformation Sunday, I am glad to be part of a church that has not protested the inevitable reformation of the church, but has continued the Protestant Reformation, the protesting Reformation in our own way, being willing to offer a good word of good Baptist dissent over the years, standing against the status quo the way things are, speaking truth to power, reading Scripture as a means of facing the always changing future without fear, defending the defenseless, offering voice to the voiceless. If we can return rightly to the core of our faith, loving God and loving our neighbor, we can face any future without fear, becoming part of what God is doing new among us today. On this Reformation Sunday, my prayer is that we will not protest the Reformation, but we will be part of the protest. May it be so.